Hey, welcome to Game Changers, uh, the podcast with Steve Tressler. Uh, my guest today is Alan Marcus Stein. Alan was born January 10th, 1952. Alan and I have known each other for the better part of well, going on 30 years now. And I treasure Alan's friendship because um, Alan has been a, a mensch to me throughout my life. And Alan... Thanks for being here. I'm glad to be here, Steve. This will be fun. Um, <clears throat> so we'll let's see go what ahead. the heck way this thing goes. Yeah, <laughs> let's let's start at the beginning. You're born January 10th, 1952. Um, tell me about mom and dad. Well, I wasn't uh, really cognizant of them at, the, at that point, but I am told that they were very happy folks. They had married uh, about a year and a half before that in 1950. And um, they had met uh, sort of in a whirlwind way. My dad had a camp uh, down at, uh, on the Kentucky River, and his best buddy brought... What was the camp called? Uh, it was at Camp Kennedy. Okay. Uh, and um, it was, you know, right around the corner from where Halls on the river is mm -hmm. now. And there, there was a whole line of these camps. And my dad actually bought this camp when he was 16 years old. And he spent a lot of time down there when he was young. And when he got back from the service, he went straight back down there and he spent a whole lot of time there. And he and his best friend, uh, Manuel Singer, uh, would go down on the weekends and they'd water ski and they'd have a big time and uh manuel singer who i called uncle manuel later in life uh brought his girlfriend uh deborah hoffman from louisville down uh for one weekend and she had to have a, a chaperone or another woman there with her and so she asked her best friend my mom ann altman uh, to, to spend the weekend down there with them. And they were all, you know, they were all pretty young kids. Uh, I mean, my dad was nine years older than my mom, and Uncle Manuel was that much older than, than Aunt Deborah. And what's, what's your dad's name? His name was Ed. So, so that's where Edward and Ann met. That's right. All right. And uh, that was in the summertime, and they were married by November. Wow. And my dad's business... Uh, was uh, a, a restaurant and like a bar, uh, you know, where they served beer on South Broadway. And it was right in, the, in a very heavily trafficked district in the midst of the Kentucky Burley tobacco market, right next to the Red Mile and the Tattersall Sales. Oh, yeah. And then... Um, huge tobacco farm. Oh, yeah. Right it, 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 that, or a, a warehouse. The warehouses yeah. were all there. And so... The, the story goes that uh, one day my dad takes out his little notebook with a calendar in it, and he says, all right, if we're going to get married, he had, they hadn't even talked about it, so if we're going to get married, it's going to have to be on this weekend because that's in between the Tattersall sales, horse sales, and the, uh, the tobacco market opening up. And so that, they got married. They had five kids. Uh, I was the eldest. Um, my dad always said that, you know, he was in the restaurant business, and the reason he had five kids was because he needed a cashier, a dishwasher, <laughs> a waiter, a cook, 
and a bus boy. Which one, which one were you? <laughs> uh, we had to do it. We, we uh, cross-trained. Okay, yeah. We wasn't called that in those days, but yeah. all five of us uh, were capable of doing all of those things. And, um, and you played a big role in that place later on, too. What, what was the name Oh, yeah, of yeah. Well, uh, after I got out of the University of Kentucky, uh, I started a college bar in that pro on that property. Okay. They called 803 South at 803 South Broadway. Right. And, um, and did really well. Did very well. Yeah. We were very fortunate. Um, but it was a, hot, a lot of hard work. Yeah. And it wasn't an overnight success. But uh, uh, a lot of great stories about that. Mm -hmm. But, um, uh, you know, that, that was the foundation of our family. And uh, we had all our family functions were there. Thanksgiving, we'd be there because the tobacco market would be going and we'd mm -hmm. all have to be working and we'd have Thanksgiving uh, ourselves there in the restaurant. And um, we all had to work during the Tattersalls horse sales in the summertime. That was a big, huge time mm -hmm. for the business. Um, you know, so it, it was uh, a very close-knit family, for sure. And in, in all those years, um, what do you remember about your your mother and her parenting style and your father and, and his parenting style? What, what kind of people were they to you all as parents? Well, my dad um, was a creator, an entrepreneur, a dreamer, uh, and the hardest working person to this day that I've ever known. Uh, his engine never turned off. And, uh, and he could be mercurial. You know, he, he certainly had a temper, um, but was a committed family man, for sure. Everything that he did in his life was for his family. Uh, to build uh, the kind of life that all of uh, the kids uh, would be comfortable and, and successful in. My mother, who was nine years younger, um, and was only 20 years older than me, we sort of grew up together a little bit. Um, she was a very typical, uh, well-educated Southern belle uh, from Helena, Arkansas. Um, born in Helena, Arkansas, uh, pretty much in the Deep South, and, and just a genteel uh, person who loved the arts and education and uh, also deeply committed to family. And both of them uh, were together uh, a, a, um, a faith-based couple, and, and we were a family. And... Um, those were sort of the basic values and ideals uh, that we had growing up. But all of it was based on um, hard work uh, and the, the tenets that, that they believed in and taught to us were tenets of our faith tradition, uh, which was uh, in, in Hebrew. We, we were of Jewish faith. Uh, it's called tikkun olam which means to repair the world. And, um, you know, that, that's all of us. Our foundation was always about doing for others and making the world a better place. And we got that from our parents. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, we used to meet 
you know, I, I was looking for an older person to be my mentor for years. Uh, well, and, I'm, I'm and certainly that. You're just a year, <laughs> hey, there's only 20 years. But I was looking for somebody, you know, uh, 10, 15 years ago that I could talk to about things because my father had passed. And I asked um, two people, and the first two people I asked in a roundabout way said they just didn't have time. They were just so busy. Um, Derek Ramsey always made time for me. But Derek at that point was at Coppin State University. Right. And then it hit me. I need to talk to Alan. And you made time. You were extremely busy. You were running your own company, the Stein Group. Um, but you made time for me. And we would meet once a month for the better part of two years. Um, you would, we would, you would let me pick your brain. And some of the stories you told me, uh, I still have written down. I, like I told you before we started today, tell me, uh, tell me a story that's very fond in your memory about you and your grandfather and baseball, because your name is synonymous with baseball, especially minor league baseball. Uh, you were in the documentary Fifty Summers, featured very prominently about. Uh, the Omaha Storm cha Chasers right. and their right. 50th year celebration and right. um, their connection to the Royals through name changes, and they reached out to you. And, of course, in Lexington, you brought pro baseball back. Uh, of course, they had the Hustlers, but there was right. never a stadium or anything. Right. So talk about how you got into baseball with your grandfather. Well, uh, first of all, I, I didn't know my father's father my paternal grandfather, he passed away um, when my father was relatively young, uh, in his early 20s, basically. Uh, so I never had a chance to meet him. That's what I want. Um, but my mother's father, uh, Henry Altman, uh, came from a prominent family in, uh, in Arkansas. Uh, they originally were from the Ten Middle Tennessee area, Murfreesboro. And uh, um, he ended up working on the railroad. But the big family businesses in, in uh, West Helena, Arkansas, um, were dry goods stores and, and uh, uh, you know, what we would call general stores, <coughs> department stores. Um, but their family success and wealth, my mother's, uh, was eighth generation of that family. Um, so they'd been there a long time. But when the Depression came, uh, th as the story was told, uh, almost all of their business uh, was done on credit, vouchers. And then when the cotton crops would come in, everyone who had bought all year long uh, would come in and pay off their bills. And the depression came and nobody came in to pay their bills and this family's wealth my my mother's family's wealth dissipated and um, so my grandfather who was in that area working on the railroad uh, also needed better and more work so he moved my family when my or his family rather my mother was three years old uh, my uncle hadn't been born yet. They moved to Louisville on the L&N Railroad, Louisville and Nashville Railroad. And he was a railroad guy. He, was, uh, uh, he ran the porters uh, on that railroad in those days. And tell them what the porters were. Porters were the, uh, were the butlers, the, uh, you know, the maitre d's, the servers, 
that whole group of folks uh, who worked in, in what we would now consider to be elegant railroad cars. Uh, romanticizing about the old railroad days is kind of fun. Um, but anyway, he moved his family to Louisville, and uh, he had to supplement his income. And so uh, as he got older, um, he, he couldn't stand the rigors of uh, the railroad business anymore. So he went to work for a company called Jeff's Shoes on, uh, on downtown in Louisville. And the Louisville Colonels, he was always a big baseball fan. The Louisville Colonels uh, were a AAA affiliate of the Milwaukee Braves in those days. And they had a kid uh, who came into Jeff's shoes uh, once a week and befriended my grandfather. And um, he went on to become a pretty good baseball player. His name was Henry Aaron. and. Uh, my grandfather um, just fell in love with Hank Aaron and called him the classiest, most gentlemanly person he'd ever met in his life. And Wait, hold right there real quick. Come on, Justin. All right, so Hank Aaron. Yeah, and so <clears throat> he, he, uh, he would talk a lot. And I was just a kid, a little bitty kid, five, six, seven years old. <laughs> and he'd talk about Hank Aaron. And when I was about six years old, uh, they lived in Louisville. Um, he asked my mom and dad if I could spend a weekend with them. And uh, I did. And we went out to the old Parkway Field uh, where the Louisville Colonels used to play mm -hmm. and watched a couple of games. And I did that continually with my grandfather over the next few years while he was still alive. And um, then we went to the fairgrounds. They went from Park Lane to uh, the fairgrounds. And uh, I was there on a night, that, uh, at least my memory tells me this is true, yeah. when uh, Bob Euchre was playing for whoever he was. I think it was a Cardinals affiliate. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, he was a Cardinal. Mm -hmm. um, hit three home runs. Wow. Bob, you could Bob, three, and he three only had runs. 16 career-wise. Yeah, well, this was in, in AAA. Oh, AAA, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Um, and I'm not absolutely sure he did, but the lighting was so terrible in that stadium that if you hit a ball into deep left center field, you, you couldn't really see it. I, my memory says he hit three home runs that, that oh, night. I would love to And I believe Bob it's Uker true that. because I actually heard him in an interview one time said, you know, I hit three home runs in a game one time. <laughs> so I think that must have been it. Yeah. But anyway. Uh, He's a legend. Oh, yeah, yeah he, he was great. He, but he is baseball. He really my, is. My grandfather just loved baseball. And he loved Jackie Robinson. And, he lo as, and subsequently he loved the, the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers. And. Uh, as so many people around the country loved the Dodgers for their integration into baseball. And my grandfather thought that was the greatest thing ever. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I, he wanted me to be a Dodgers fan, but I just couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Because simultaneous to that, my dad would take me to Cincinnati, to Crosley Field. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, I quickly, quickly became a big fan. My first game at Crosley was in 1959, and it was a game that Frank Robinson 
and Veda Pinson both hit home runs. Wow. And that did it for me, man. I, I was a Cincinnati Reds fan for life then. And we, we often went to, uh, uh, you know, two, three, four, five sometimes games a year uh, in Cincinnati. And in those days, Cincinnati was in the West Division of the National oh, League. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, like the Dodgers, and they played the, the Dodgers and the Giants. Well, no, there were no Astros, at, le at least in 1959. Yeah. Astros didn't come around until 62, I But don't there's think. only four, I remember, in the West. When yeah, I think yeah. that's right. But San Francisco and Los Angeles. Yeah. And so I saw, I can't tell you how many Dodgers and Giants games I saw, which also meant that I got to see Willie Mays mm -hmm. a lot. And I got to see Hank Aaron play for Milwaukee a lot. And... Um, you know, and one of my favorite players was on the Giants. Willie Mays, to me, you know, there, there's some great players, and I'm a big Shohei Otani fan right now. I am too. But, uh, you know, if, if somebody put me on the ground with a gun to my head and said, who's the best player ever, I'd have to say Willie Mays. And, you know, I'm, well, not, I'm, not, I'm not alone in that. No, no <laughs> and let's stop right here for a second, because Willie Mays, if I'm not mistaken, was like 24-time All-Star, is that correct? Well, that's right. Well, he I yeah. Mean, who has been Hank on an All-Star team for a quarter Hank, of a century? Hank Aaron uh, may, was on one more All-Star team, but neither one of them played uh, uh, played in an All-Star game that many years in a row. Right. For many years, they played two All-Star games a year. I didn't know that. Yeah, the first game that they played, uh, the the first All-Star game that they played was for the owners and the owners made all the money but the second one they made all that money went into the players pension plan uh, fund uh -huh. and so for quite a few years they actually played two all-star games in wow. a year i didn't know that yeah that's um, pretty interesting and, so. and so uh and you still i'm pretty sure if i have to pick one thing that is in your wallet right this very second <laughs> I'll bet you have that Willie Mays card in no, your wallet. No, it's not Willie Mays. Who is it? It's my very I, – I, now, I said that Willie Mays is the best player I ever saw. Uh, Let me see. Is it – hold on. Let me guess. Is it Frank Robinson? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. I remember you had a Frank Robinson baseball card. Yeah, right there. Yeah. You, you, you I, pulled out your wallet one day. We were buying yeah. coffee. And I said, is that a baseball card, your wallet? And you're like, yeah, it's yeah. Frank Robinson. And sure enough, there it is. Yeah. So, there you go. Frank Robinson baseball card still in his wallet. Uh, it is not a PSA 10 value, <laughs> but he was the rookie of the year in 1956. Yes, he was. And I saw him first in 1959. And, um, and I loved that team. But I, I have to tell you, I have another, the other card that I carry. And he's from Beaumont, Texas, by the way. Here you go. Well, he grew up in Oakland, though. Yep. Now, on that is Frank Robinson and Beta Pinson. Yeah. But the third guy is Gus Bell. Mm -hmm. Gus Bell was a power-hitting left fielder for yeah. that Reds team. He was from Louisville, Kentucky. And he dated in high school Ann Altman, my really? mama. That's crazy. And his son was Buddy Bell, yeah. who was a third baseman, yeah. third baseman, many-time All-Star, manager of the Reds. Um, and now an advisor to the Reds, and also father of the Reds' current manager, David Bell. Wow. How cool is that? Yeah, that's that's what a connection. Yeah, and that's neat. You you have both of those in your wallet. Yeah.
even though you don't have a wallet, you have a clip. But I do remember seeing that uh, that day. It always stuck with me because I have a card that I keep my wallet um, as well, but not a baseball player. Um, now, so we've 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 learned a little bit about your your mom and dad, your family. There was five of you. You were the oldest. Um, grandfather would take you to those games, but you were a Reds fan. Yep. And right after eight oh three South, when did you say? Or when did the idea hit you, I'm going to bring baseball to Lexington, and as a matter of fact, not only are we going to bring it to Lexington, we're going to build a stadium. Well, How in the world do you even start the, the, that you know, process? That, that's a long evolution. Um, I was still in business in 1984 before the railroad. Uh, Doing what? Running 803 South. Mm -hmm. And the railroad uh, overpass project uh, – came through on South Broadway, which is still obviously there today. And uh, they, the, uh, Im through eminent domain, the state uh, took a whole lot of property through there, including the Southern Railroad Depot and uh, where our property in 803 South were. But that was in 1984. Now, hold on. When, when, when the state declares eminent domain, yeah. what kind of a compensation do they give you for the property? Well, they offer you whatever they think it's worth. Um, Which is usually never close to what it is uh, worth. Or? You know, I don't know about that, but but I will tell you that we disputed it, and uh, you know we because there's future you, earnings on that property. Well, sure, uh, you go to court, and uh, a court determines what the fair market value okay. is, and that's what happens. And did it end up being fair? Well, no, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course a, not. All right, so go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> That'll be another conversation. But it, but it was a significant amount of money, and and uh, you know because we had a thriving business there. Um, but it was also homestead. My, you know, my grandmother lived in the house next door. Uh, my dad was born in that house. I mean, it was, it, and it's right at where Curry Avenue is today. Now there's a Super America there. Although it's in a little different location because they relocated the whole road. Rogers Restaurant used to be across the street and 803. So uh, it was so important that they take away a home and a thriving business oh yeah. to put a supermarket there. And, and, and in fairness, it was very important. That's, that was a major crossing. Uh, South Broadway was a, a loaded uh, traffic fare, thoroughfare, and because of the railroad, uh, if you were on the wrong side of the tracks, you couldn't get to a hospital in an emergency situation. Those those trains came through there 20 times per day and and stopped traffic for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever. It was, yeah, it was certainly necessary. Um, but, you know, that's the way it goes. That's progress, I suppose. So how do we get to baseball? With so in 1984, um, at, 80, at 8.03, uh, two of my buddies were in, and we were having a cocktail uh, in the afternoon as, uh, that, you know, that that's a pretty standard part of my history is, you know, there was this cute girl and I was having a cocktail. And mm -hmm. Anyway, so Pete Guthrie, uh, a, a local attorney, and Don Paris, also a local attorney who uh, later became a judge, both baseball fans. We we're all talking baseball. 
And I was reading, I had read that day that they were in, in the sporting news, which was the, you know, the Bible for baseball fans. Yeah, you, yeah. you know, it was before ESPN or Sports Center or anything. Mm -hmm. You get once a week, you'd get your news basically from the sporting news. There was an article that said um, Major League Baseball was thinking about expanding, and um, you know, and there were a lot of cities they talked about: Denver and Phoenix and Miami and. And a lot of places where they might expand and that caught my interest but there was a corollary article on the next page that just queried if major league baseball expands to any of these cities that means there's going to be at least six more minor league cities mm -hmm. uh, in this expansion around the country for each team that they add and the article went on to say where do you think that ought to be? And they speculated on a bunch of cities, and Lexington was on that list. Hmm. So I said to Don and, uh, and to Pete, and this is 1984, we should, we should put an advocacy group together and, and see if we can get a team here. And then uh, Don said, well, you know, I'm pretty good friends with Governor Wilkinson. Maybe we can get the state to help build a stadium. Wallace Wilkinson. Wallace Wilkinson. And uh, – so that's where the whole idea came up. That was in 1984, and it evolved from that. Never did I think that, I, A, I was going to have to build a stadium, or, B, that I was even going to be involved in it. I just wanted to ha have a place where if I ever had a family somewhere in the future, I wanted to be able to take my kids to a ball game. And um, so I thought it would be great for Lexington, a great asset, and this idea kept germinating. There was expansion, um, and uh, a few of us got together and put a proposal together. Uh, Bowie Kuhn came to Lexington, who was the commissioner of baseball at that time. I think he came in 1990 or 91. A petition was put together. We had 15,000 people signed the petition to bring professional baseball to Lexington. A guy named Dennis Bastine, who owned a club in Charleston, West Virginia, wanted to relocate from Charleston to Lexington, so he would have been the operator, um, but he wasn't going to build a stadium because nobody built a stadium. That was always done by local municipalities. And we're talking, what, 1999 at this well, point? Well, no, no, no. At this point, we're still talking 89, 90, 91. Got it. And the petition drive was very successful, but Urban County, the Urban County government had no interest in building a stadium, and we couldn't get any traction uh, from our representatives in, in uh, uh, Frankfurt. So the idea kept, we kept it alive, but it really, you know, didn't look like it was going to happen. And so from 1990 to 1994, uh, we just kept, you know, doing editorials and we'd, you know, there were more of us then. This group now had grown to about 15 or 20 people. And, um, and Dudley Webb got on board with it and Don Ball got on board with it. And we seemed like we got more momentum going. So uh, the two major builders got involved, the two, Webb family, two, the Ball family. Two, two significant folks. Mm -hmm. And... Um, they were, they were interested in seeing this happen, too. Um, so we kept working at it, but we could still never convince the city to do it. And then at some point, Pam Miller 
was uh, uh, Pam Miller was the mayor at that time, and she she had said in her uh, at, at a uh, campaign function for her reelection. Love Pam. Yeah, uh, we're big fans of Pam Miller. Voted for her every time. I, her. I hosted her fundraiser. I yeah. was her MC. Yeah. So we're at the Red Mile when she announces reelection. And she says, and we're going to do three things. And I can't remember what two of them were. But the third one was, we're going to build a ballpark. We're going to see about getting that done. So we thought, well, finally, we've got a mayor on board. Maybe we can get some traction, get this done. And right about that time, Major League Baseball expands again. And so Lexington now is the seventh largest city in the country without professional sports. And so Don... Uh, rather, uh, uh, Dudley and I, uh, sort of self-appointed, representing this group of investors and potential supporters, went to Boston representing Lexington, and uh, we were there to present the idea that Lexington should be considered for a double-A Southern League expansion team. And... <coughs> This is a very long story that you probably don't have time for now. Uh, but we sort of got, uh, I, I think it's fair to say that our, our project presentation was undermined because the morning we were in Boston presenting, uh, the headline in the Lexington Herald Leader, which was a Knight Ritter paper, and this is important to the story, uh, Knight Ritter paper headline, Mayor Says No to Downtown Rupp Arena Site, which she had told Dudley and me uh, previously that she would support that site. And it would be on the High Street lot right across from Rupp Arena, and that's where we would build, we would build the ballpark. Well, for whatever reason, she changed her mind and didn't tell us, and so we had to do a little song and dance because – there were two other cities competing against us, Springfield, Massachusetts, and Erie, Pennsylvania, and they both had Knight Ritter newspapers. And lo oh, and wow. behold, they had copies of the Lexington Herald Leader that they put in front of the selection committee that morning. And I had, you know, we were, we were caught off guard, but we were able to make our presentation anyway, and we just redirected it away from the Rupp Arena lot and you did a song and dance and it included a $50 tip to uh, a guy at the hotel to be late with the video equipment we had prepared. A, uh, you know, this is 1996, a, a rudimentary PowerPoint mm -hmm. and we needed him not to show up so we just could talk instead of having the video presentation and we got that done and in fact we became a finalist um, but it was contingent upon having a site and having the city support building uh, the facility and we couldn't get that done so that's that's over that was it and then later that year still 1996 um, I was a friend of mine governor Paul Patton <coughs> called and said, um, you know, not everybody knows this yet, but it looks like we're going to have, this is how long ago it was, we're going to have a fairly significant surplus in our budget this year. 
And I think we're going to put $200 million away into a rainy day fund, but we're going to spend $150 million around the state. And we're going to commit money to each of the 15 ad districts, an average of $10 million, more or less, depending on the size. Uh, and it has to be approved by the local delegation as to what project they want to fund. But he described it as one-time capital projects for communities who want but can't afford these projects. Hmm. That sounded like a baseball stadium to me. Mm -hmm. Well, um, that, that was a wonderful idea, and it, and it actually worked. That's how you got the Northern Kentucky Aquarium and the Berea Arts and Crafts uh, uh, facility and the Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame and the Country Music Hall of Fame Museum and all these things all around the state. Unfortunately, in central Kentucky, um, our legislators couldn't agree on anything. And I was even married to one of those legislators at the time. Mm -hmm. I thought I had an opportunity to get it done, but uh, what the the legislators in central Kentucky decided was it would be better better spent of that 15 million dollars to find 15 nonprofits in the central Kentucky area and give them a million dollars each and that's a wonderful thing but it's not a one-time capital project when you're funding big brothers big sisters which I support and always have but other organizations like that and so all around the state all of these uh, long-lasting uh, projects got built, but we didn't get one in Central Kentucky. And so that, that was pretty much the end of it for me. We'd failed at the local level, we'd failed at the state level, and I just never thought that we were going to get it done. Oh, you know, and I'm so a, that was in 1996. And yeah. I'm a huge supporter, uh, you know, of, of those organizations as well. As, you know, I was a big brother for 20 years. I know. But, you know, I... I understand your frustration there, and I more than anything support what happened next. So talk about that. Well, uh, move forward uh, to 1998, and I was sitting on the front porch uh, having a cocktail one evening with my buddy. Uh, Speaking of which, I should have had a cocktail here. Yeah, we, I'm should, sorry. we should have. Uh, with my buddy, Dr. Billy Forbes, um, and I was commiserating about how short-sighted our state government was and how short even more short-sighted our local government was and that this was something that the, the community wanted and it would be an investment worth making. And uh, we had even uh, come to an agreement that we would pay for we would buy a franchise and we would pay for 50 percent of of the facility which would hadn't been done anywhere pause it right there so right. we're, we're sitting so. on the front porch lovely summer evening and um my son scooter uh who at the time uh, was nine years old said to me um, you know, something that I always said to them when they, whenever I was helping them with their homework and they'd say, well, do this, Dad. And I'd say, no, do the math. 
Well, so Scooter says, while he's sitting there listening to Billy and me talk about, you know, what a, what a terrible thing it is that we couldn't convince anybody to build us a stadium. And he said, Dad, have you done the math? And I said, Scooter, of course I've done the math. I've been at this for years and years and years. I'm a successful business person. You know, I was in this business. I was in that business. We sold our radio stations. You know, of course. Uh, of course I did the math. Well, the truth of the matter was, um, and I thought about it all that night. I couldn't sleep. The next morning, I realized that maybe I hadn't done all of the math. Because going back to that, that first article in the Sporting News in 1984, or yeah, 1984, the suggestion was that Lexington, Kentucky would be a perfect fit for a double-A Cincinnati Reds affiliate in the Southern League. Absolutely, yeah. It would have been. It was great. And that's all I ever thought about. It's all any of us ever thought about. All Still would the way, be. Yeah. All the way through. But then I started doing the math. And so a double-A team would have cost in those days about seven, seven and a half million dollars. And you would have to build a stadium with a minimum of 6,000 fixed seats. And then there's some additional costs and things that go along with that. But that, would be, that was what we'd done all our budgets on. Six, build a stadium with 6,000 6, seats and, you know, have to buy a double-A franchise at $7.5 million. So I said to myself, what if, and I remembered going all the way back to 1990 when Bowie Kuhn was here, also with him was John Henry Moss of the South Atlantic League, the historic South Atlantic League. Well, that was a single-A league. So I thought, well, let's, let's do this math. What happens if we do a single-A project? Well, you didn't have to have 6,000 seats. You only had to have 4,000. The cost of building a stadium in those days, in 1998, to build a, a, a stadium with 4,000 seats at $2,000 per fixed seats, eight million bucks. 6,000 seats is 12 million bucks. So if you drop from double A to single A, just building your stadium, you save $4 million. The price of a double-A team, $7.5 million, you could buy a single-A team for around $3 million. Mm. There's another $4 million. Yeah. Then with the additional cost of, you know, travel and other things that double-A has that are not required in single-A, it you turn out about a $10 million savings. So if you look at that, and you use the same number if you feel like you're going to sell the same number of tickets and the same number of sodas and the same number of hot dogs and the same number of jerseys and hats, but you've got $10 million less, then we could build the stadium with private funding, without the city, without the state, and we could make those numbers work. So I did the math. It came out 
let's do this. Well, the problem with that was it had never been done before. Nobody had ever built uh, a minor league baseball stadium or, for that matter, a football facility or anything else without some level, if not all, level of funding from a local municipality. Hadn't been done. Um, so we had to overcome that. And a number of the investors who we had gathered up had doubts also. They, they just weren't sure that it could work if we were not AA in the Southern League, if we were not in a 6,000-seat stadium, if we were not a Cincinnati Reds affiliate. So I took three people with me. We went to Chattanooga, Tennessee with our little legal pads and little pencils, and we went to see a Chattanooga Southern League AA Reds affiliate game. Chattanooga Lookouts. The Chattanooga Lookouts. And we went for three straight weekends, and we interviewed people as they were coming out of the ballpark. And this was not a terribly scientific poll. It, we didn't do cross tabs. There were none of that stuff. We asked four basic questions. The first question we asked was, who won the game? What was the score of the game? The second question we asked was, what level of baseball, what classification did you just watch? The third question was, who are those teams that you just watched affiliated with on the major league level? I see where you're going. It's great and questions. The, the fourth question I'll get to. The answer to question number one, who won the game? What was the score? 52% of the people coming out of the ballpark at the end of the game didn't know who won the dadgum game. 52%. Yeah. 61% did not know that they had just seen a double-A Southern League game. We had, you know, some of these teams that came in there, one of them had a Korean player, so we had two or three people say it was Korean League. We had one lady say, well, there's Little League, isn't it? Another, another person said, uh, well, this is Major League Baseball. You know, they didn't know, didn't care, 61%. 72% did not know that the Chattanooga Lookouts were an affiliate of the Cincinnati Reds. And it had Reds stuff all over the place. There were pictures of Pete Rose and Johnny Bench and, you know, all sorts of guys who had played for the Reds over the years, probably came through Chattanooga at some point or another. 72% of the people did not know. And I know Pete most definitely did. It was in his book. So, you and know. I, the, the, I can almost guess your last question. Well, then the last question was, did you have fun? And if so, will uh, you come back? See, that was my, I was going to say, did and you have And it fun? was a 98% plus yeah, yeah. said, sure, it was a blast. Yeah. So then when we asked that, you know, if they said yes to that, which 98% of the people did, we asked them, well, what made it fun? And they told us it was the players talk to the fans. It was 
the hot dogs are inexpensive. The tickets don't cost too much. I don't have to drive a long way. Some of these guys make it to the major leagues and we get to follow them. The bathrooms are clean. And close. You, and, cl you know, all of those sorts yeah. of things. So we took no notes on all of that. I came back and talked to our investor group with all this information, and most of them were still skeptical. Nah, it's not a Reds affiliate. You know, this is Lexington where Keeneland rules and the Red Mile harness track doesn't do very well. We like... We like big league stuff. We're not so sure about anything less. We're in Lexington, and we're used to playing uh, because UK plays in the SEC, so we're used to playing against teams from, you know, Tuscaloosa and Knoxville and Nashville and places like that. Will people even come to see teams from Hickory, North Carolina, Hagerstown, Maryland, mm -hmm. you know, would they even bother to come, Macon, Georgia? Those are all fair questions, but I was convinced, and I convinced enough of our investors that we should move forward and make it happen. And, you know, the, you know, the cliche, the rest is history. Well, it sort of is. We, we built it from that. People came here. We entertained them. We gave them a product that was all about fan experience, not about winning or losing. It was really good luck that we had an unbelievably good team that very first year in 2001 yeah. and won the league championship. But, you know, it, everything was kind of magical. It, that first year, we didn't even have a single rain out, not one. Yeah. Uh, it, it was just a great year. And we, got, we kicked it off beautifully, and uh, we became extraordinarily successful from that. Who was your very first mascot? <laughs> well, the very first mascot, there's a story to that. Uh, his name, the guy who actually played the mascot, was a guy named Steve Tressler. I love that guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, so. And, and, he he okay, was Pee Wee. That was a shameless plug right there. <laughs> yeah. But I love the fact that, you know, it was just, <laughs> it, was, it was you, me, and that married couple. What was her name? Uh, Kevin and Renee Culp. That's right. We were sitting. It was just we, it was just the four of us. Yep. And we were in the office, and that was your staff. And I remember I, I pitched the idea of the baseball head, since we don't have a team name yet that could go to events and wave. And you said, Steve, I'm a salesman. I, I don't have to be sold on a good idea. Let's yep. do it. And then we were looking for the mascot name. And you came up with Pee Wee. Right. And I thought it was brilliant. He was from Kentucky. He was a great baseball player, a well-known one, and one that was uh, as told in the movie now, of course. Uh, but but prior to that, you knew very accepting of integration right. and of baseball. Uh, just a great ambassador. Right. We bought that the Pee Wee at the first um, winter baseball meetings that I attended in 1990. Nine, I think. And we still in, use in the Nashville. same suit today. <laughs> and it stinks so bad. No. <laughs> the we, inside we, of that helmet. We, we've replaced it over the years, but we still use Pee Wee yeah. for sure. Yeah. And I bought him uh, at the end of the trade show when everybody's packing up. Oh, really? And it was a, a demo of just a what generic be, yeah. baseball guy. That's awesome. And I said, we don't have a name or anything. That. That's our guy. That's our guy. Mr. Generic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Uh, that That's, hey, I, I, that was fun talking about that. Um, 
quick questions here for you, okay? Sure. Some, some rapid fire. Okay. Uh, Alan Stein, what's your favorite food? Ah, well, uh, I, I'm pretty eclectic uh, in, in what I like. I, I love Chinese food. I love kosher foods. Um, but if, if, if I'm one in, in prison, I think I'd say lamb chops. Lamb chops, one meal lamb chops. All yeah. right. Uh, favorite movie? Uh, you know, that's probably got to be Bull Durham. Okay, Bull Durham, sure. Uh, what's your? Who's your favorite musician? Uh, Linda Ronstadt. Favorite type of music? Oh, I, I can't narrow that down, but there's not much I don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I love classical music. I love jazz. Um, I love country music. Uh, not so much today's country music, although... You know, I, I, I like uh, Chris Stapleton and, and Tyler Childers. But, um, you know, there's, there's not much I don't like, really. I, I, I guess I kind of lost it somewhere in the mid-'80s to the mid-'90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, that wasn't my favorite. But, uh, you know, Motown, Soul, oh, yeah, Elvis, that. The Beatles, you know, it's hard to be. Oh, yeah. Um Give me a handful of childhood sports heroes. We've talked about a few already. Frank Robinson, Willie Mays. Yeah, Frank Robinson, Willie Mays, uh, Jim Brown. Um, you know, I really liked uh, Jerry West. I uh, got to see Jerry West play in college at UK in the UK IT. So I always liked and followed him. Uh, I loved Kareem. Uh, you know, yeah. when he was Lou Alcindor and then Kareem. Uh, you know, I just loved what he stood for and, and the way he stood up as a man. Mm-hmm. And, oh, by the way, he was an incredible basketball player. Yeah. Um, Jim Green. Misunderstood, I really think. Yeah. Jim Green, who was a an Olympic and world-class sprinter at UK, was a classmate of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I admired him like crazy. My favorite UK basketball player, uh, we just lost, uh, Cotton Nash. Yeah. Um, and I, he's I'd such be, a good man. I, I, I wish I would have done this podcast and got him on it prior. Cause yeah, I, I, I knew him fairly well when I worked at the radio station. I loved him. Yeah, Cotton was was an amazing guy and player. Um, you know, I, I guess those guys. Did I leave anybody out? I don't think so. No, there's plenty. Um, who was your celebrity crush growing up? Who? Linda Ronstadt. Yeah, Linda. But it wasn't growing up. I thought we were going to get married, and it just didn't work out. All right. <laughs> um, so let's let's move on to this. What is the difference between the love you have for your children, which how many children do you have? Three. And they are Scooter and? Wade, Scooter, and Hadley. In order. Okay. And what's the difference between the love you have for your children and now the love you have for your grandchildren? I, I don't know. Is there a difference? I a lot of people say you love your children, but man, oh man, there's just something about well, it. It's different for sure. Uh-huh. Um, it, it's it's almost a, a sense of wonder with your grandchildren, and it's more a sense of fear <laughs> of <laughs> am am I doing the right thing? Am I doing this right uh-huh. with your children? Um, but in terms of uh, fiercely protecting and loving them there's no difference 
That's an interesting way to put it. It's a sense of wonder. With your children, it's almost fear. You love them, but you do, you do so many things because you want to do the right thing. You know what? With my grandchildren, I've got uh, Levi is is just past two and a half, and Eden, the baby, uh, is nine months old. Um, and and I watch them every day, and and I'm just fascinated by watching them. With my children, I don't remember all of these things because it's all in the moment and you you know you have your own you're trying to work and provide yeah so it's much more relaxed and and i wouldn't say more fun but you're you're more in tune with what's happening with your grandchildren okay that's and plus as every grandparent says you know when it gets beyond that you give them back that's right (laughs) when you're done you're done that's 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 what everybody says that has grandchildren. Uh, you met Warren Buffett. You had some time you spent with him yep. on a few occasions. What, yeah. what was the best thing that you took from him or the best piece of advice or something he said that stuck with you? He said a lot of things. So, you know, we, we became uh, – we were partners at our, our uh, deal in Omaha, and I got to meet with him on a fairly regular basis. You know, I, I wouldn't say we were best buddies or anything, but, we, you know, we spent – quite a bit of time together and um he said a lot of things that really stuck with me but one that i have talked to all of all of my uh subsequent business partners and employees over the years that he said about consumer-based businesses which is what he does you know berkshire hathaway invests in businesses like the railroads and coca-cola and seize candy and newspapers they're all consumer based and those are the things that i've my investments have been in over the years too bars restaurants you know uh real estate developments baseball whatever he said and i think this is absolutely 100 percent right you cannot you cannot cut expenses you can't cut your way to prosperity prosperity comes from driving the top line that doesn't mean that you ignore the expense line and 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 how you're handling your expenses you pay close attention to that but if you think that your success is going to come by cutting back on any of the assets that make you successful you're making a mistake and that that has really stuck with me so kind of a way to say you've got to spend money to make money. Or well, you know, not necessarily. Money. It's not necessarily, but it, it, often it will be that. Mm-hmm. But you can drive your top line by good service, by uh, yeah. by you know, in a in a business like ours in the baseball business, by having security there and ushers and and uh, qu- good quality food and. You know, it doesn't always have to be about spending more money, but, you know, that comes into it, too. You shouldn't be afraid to spend what it takes to be excellent. And the the one thing that every successful business has. I think you just made a good one there. Well, it's be afraid to spend what it takes to be excellent. Yeah, you have to have a culture uh, that strives to be excellent in every aspect of what you do. Yeah, 100 percent. That's, you know, one thing I always remembered about baseball here was that when you were in charge, 
that's exactly what you got. You always got a good show when you came here. You always everything, you know, the seats were wiped down. Right. There was no dirt on the seats. There right. was no uh, trash in the stands before the game. Right. You know, and that's right. uh, it's nice to see that again this year. I think they've done a better job this year. I believe that's true. Yeah. Um, so I'm gonna give you five names, and you just give me a one or two sentence on you know what you think of them or, or what sticks out. Um, Rick Patino. I think Rick may be the best uh, motivator and uh, X's and O's coach in all of basketball. And I 100 percent agree. And may have. I think he's a phenomenal coach. May have uh, been uh, one of the best of all time. Yeah. He's an, an amazing basketball coach. Yeah. Uh, that, that's why I asked you about him. Yeah. Uh, Sparky Anderson. Oh, uh, Sparky. Sparky probably knew how to handle men better than anybody you could ever run into. He had collection. He was so successful, and there was nothing really about Sparky that you would say, well, this makes him successful, other than the way he handled egos. The, all of the egos that he had to, had to handle. And he did it at different levels. When he... You know, he was so successful in Cincinnati with all of those great players and great names. And then he went to Detroit where he didn't have the plethora of outstanding superstars, but he had a bunch of good players. Mm -hmm. He knew how to, to get the most out of every player one-on-one. -on -one. And, you know, some of, some of the leadership books would tell you uh, the way he did it might not work because, you know, there, there was always a joke that, if you were Sparky's, uh, you know, on his good list, you got to do things that other guys didn't do. Oh, yeah. But, you know, they he developed a culture where people knew that their own personal needs would be attended to. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, so Sparky, just a great manager of men. All right. Um, P. Rose. Oh, gosh. Um Pete, uh, probably the epitome of what everybody wants to grow up to be as a baseball player. Yeah. Um, and somewhat a, a, a Greek tragedy in and of himself. Mm -hmm. uh, he just couldn't get out of his own way. But until Pete was in trouble and imploded, he was one of the more beloved athletes in history oh, yeah. and and deservedly so mm -hmm. because of the the success that he gained uh, through his own work ethic and guile uh, and making the most of his talent was something to really be admired but that doesn't mean that's where that story ends <laughs> Hal McRae oh gosh uh, Hal was tough as nails um, you know, and, and would do whatever it took to win. Mm -hmm. um, you know, not everybody liked that approach, but, uh, you know. I showed I, Chris Bryant how he would break up double plays. Oh, yeah. And it, how they put the rule in place that you, you couldn't Yeah, you, you couldn't, couldn't barrel anymore. roll guys yeah. anymore and that sort of stuff. There are, there are great athletes in history who, you know, Dick Butkus and, and Mike Ditka, and Hal McRae and Bob Gibson, who 
fortunately in my lifetime I became good friends with. Mm. Um, they would do anything, everything within the rules to win. That's so funny because Bob Gibson is my next name. Well, you know, Bob was a great man um, and, and a sweetheart of a guy. The first black Hall of Famer that did not play in the Negro Leagues, too. Did you know that? I don't think yeah, – are you sh- – uh, well, yeah, I'm, no, I'm, I'm, I'm 100% sure. If you're sure of that, that's yeah. fine. He was I, the very first uh, Hall of Famer in Major League Baseball that never played in the Negro Leagues. Yeah. I don't think I knew that. I, I know he played for the Globetrotters. I didn't uh, know that, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, he played basketball for the Globetrotters. Wow. Um, yeah, I've got a lot of great Bob Gibson stories. But he, he, was, he was one of the nicest men off the field, funny, droll, uh, but scary on the, on the mound. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he was going to win. Yeah. And he did not suffer fools gladly. I will say that. Mm-mm. Um, George Brett. I love George. Uh, you know George? Uh, yeah, I do. Oh uh, my gosh. I'd love to meet him. Yeah. I, I love George. There, the, you know, when you're with George, um, one of the things that he likes to do, uh, is, when we were at the stadium in Omaha, from time to time, he'd come. And after a while, we'd be having a cocktail in the suite, and he'd, he'd say, Alan, let's go be George Brett. And, which means we'd go suite to suite and walk in, take pictures with people, have a drink, get phone numbers, whatever, you know, yeah. whatever we were doing. He was the, the funniest, uh, most fun-loving guy you will ever, ever meet. Ever, if there's anybody who's been comfortable in their own skin and wanted to be who they were, that was George. He's an unbelievable player. Oh yeah, and that too. Yeah. Yeah, Um, Bud Selig. I know you know him. Well, I met him. I I I wouldn't say that I I know him. Um, I think he did a lot of great stuff for baseball, Uh, and I also think that uh, he kind of turned a blind eye to some stuff that was going on that really was detrimental to the game, Uh, most particularly steroids and uh, performance-enhancing drugs. They were just, you know, late to the party to deal with all of that, and they tried to let it go. And they capitalized on the results of that, but it it has come back, continues to come back and haunt the game. Jackie Robinson? Oh, well, you know, obviously I didn't know Jackie Robinson. Uh, I I have met his daughter and his wife. Um, But um, courageous, uh, just forthright, and what we forget um, in in all of the stuff that Jackie did uh, for the game, he was an incredible, Incredible athlete, yeah. unbelievable athlete. Yeah, in and, multiple and, sports. Yeah, and, and that sort of gets lost in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, to absolutely to be admired. Um, yeah, one of the greats. Last name Nolan Ryan. Yeah, well I know Nolan Ryan too, and um, I'm much better friends with Reed and Reese, his sons, who own, own minor league clubs and in, in the same business I was in. The, that, that, that's one of my all-time favorites is Nolan Ryan. Yeah, Nolan Ryan's great. Um, and he's, he's just a solid guy. You know, I've met him yeah. two or three times. Seems like uh, 
you know, family man, family guy, just down to earth, but also tough as nails. Mm-hmm. Obviously, tough as nails. Yeah, um, Alan, I appreciate you doing this. Um, tell me something that you want people to always remember about Alan Stein, and and don't be, you know, don't don't hold back here. What what do you want to be your legacy if if somebody never met Alan Stein? Um, well, I'd like to think that uh, some of the things that, that I've done uh, uh, over my life and career that not very many people know about um, other than those that were involved is I, I, I like to reach out and help folks, uh, whether it's mentoring them, giving advice, uh, teaching, um, you know, giving people uh, a second or third chance when others won't. Uh, I'm proud of that without getting into any specifics or names. Some of my proudest moments have to do. I know a few uh, of the names. Yeah, with, with uh, helping folks uh, try to get back on their feet. Um, and what most people actually do know about me, uh, if there's, other than, you know, being fun and, and I, I'd like to think that people will remember me as a fun guy. But um, if my legacy, I hope, would, would go way beyond baseball or the bar business that I was in or any of the other things I've done, if it would settle on my advocacy and decades-long commitment to public education, I'd be proud of that. All right. Alan, you know I love you, and... I'm just so proud of you and, and all that you've done. And nobody's perfect. I'm certainly not. Um, but I think you've been a perfect mentor in so many ways, and I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate that. Um, it's important. It, 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 I am so blessed, not just with the family that I was able to be born into. I'm one of the people who stayed at home uh, his whole life. I've lived in Lexington all but three years of my life. Um, my family was here. Uh, I was born into a perfect family. I am still friends with the people that I've grown up with. I have, you know, three of the very best friends that anybody's ever had in their life, lifelong friends. I don't think it gets any better than that got a good relationship with my faith uh, and my kids are amazing so um, yeah it's been pretty blessed I'm not ready to quit yet Mm -hmm. but um, and you had a book recommendation for me I do um, and I forgot what's the name of it Uh, you told me that uh, it's Arthur Brooks you said it's called how to build a life you want How, how to build the life you want and it's by Arthur Brooks and Oprah Winfrey, of all folks. Um, you said Arthur Brooks is what? He is a professor at Harvard University, and he t- his class that he teaches is happiness. And this book, which I haven't read yet, but I'm I'm gonna buy very all right. soon. All right, uh, is about what is important in your life and how to be happy, and. It's not about fame or fortune or, you know, any any of the 
normal standards, he disputes all of that, and he gets into, at least in the couple of interviews that I've seen him do, uh, he gets into what truly can make you happy. And so uh, I'm already recommending, a, I've, you know. Yeah, you, were, you told me I, about I, it. I've, I've recommended the book, and I haven't even read it yet, but I know I'm gonna get it. I'm it's gonna get it. the real deal. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the last thing, you told me years ago, the best advice you ever gave me was do it now. Yeah. That's do right. it now. If there's something on there that you can do, get it done. Do it now. I write that. Uh, you know, it's on my desk blotter every yeah. month when I change over the calendar. Do it now. Do it now. Well, you know, I, I learned a long time ago. Uh, I went to a, a time management course or something way back in my radio days, back in the 80s or whatever. And the one thing I walked away from was this thing called single-step handling. And it's a simple concept. It simply is, when something comes to your desk, do it now and be done with it. Now, there is a, a corollary problem to that that I have learned since I've gotten into my 60s and 70s. And that is, if you're very good at that, if, if you're a disciple of the single-step strategy, which I am, Unfortunately, as you get older, you do something. As soon as it comes to your desk, you do it. Two weeks later, somebody says, did you do ABC? And you got to go, heck, I don't know. I think I, I did. I must have, <laughs> yeah. but I don't remember. Because yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been so far ago. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Um, Alan, you know I'll keep you here all night, but I don't want to. I yeah, know you got stuff to do. Um, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. You bet, Steve. Thanks. All right. Thank you.